0: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move and here's your need to know. Attempting aids, the latest U.S. jobs numbers underline the need to act. Deutsche is back. Germany's biggest bank reports its first profit in six years. And Reddit-related regulation. Janet Yellen holding talks on last week's volatility. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome to all our first movers around the globe. Great to be with you. What a week it's been already, filled with science, stimulus and big tech succession. And, of course, the spectacle of speculation. I'm shocked I didn't stumble. Former TD Ameritrade CEO Joe Moglia joins us later with his thoughts on the Reddit revolt and how potent this force could be in financial markets in the future. It's a question Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will be asking today when she meets a host of U.S. regulators to discuss the recent volatility. A bit late, though, to the GameStop game, perhaps. The big Reddit names have slid from spectacular to, well, snoozy by comparison. GameStop and cinema chain AMC, a relatively flat pre-market. I love it when we're calling 1.7 and at 2.1% relatively flat. Wall Street says that volatility has also tumbled after last week's Reddit-induced spike. The VIX volatility index giving back pretty much the 60% gains plus that we saw in last week's trading sessions too. Global markets calmer as well. U.S. futures are higher. We can take a look at those. A mixed picture over in Europe. Asia a little softer too. That said, shares of Asian auto giants Hyundai and Kia revved higher on reports they may partner with Apple for a self-driving electric iCar. The CEO of Volvo Cars will be steering us through their latest results and talking all that tech later in the show, too. Now, EVs, electric vehicles, may be some way in our future. But for now, we do remain in the pandemic present. More than 770,000 Americans filing for first-time jobless claims last week better than expected, but still an appalling and eye-watering number. A stark contrast perhaps to with the ADP report, the private payroll report, that suggested private employers ramped up hiring in the new year. Those weekly numbers are falling slowly. But remember, almost 18 million people are still receiving some form of employment assistance. Let's get to the drivers because Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, it's fascinating. You know, I've been looking at social media and some people are saying that the data today suggests a level of resilience for the U.S. economy and how you can use the word resilience. Quite frankly, thank goodness if that's what you think resilience is when 18 million people are still getting some form of assistance. And that's the bottom line.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's there's the level of
0: change, and then there's
1: just the overall level here. And the level here, week after week, is so high. Um, Forty-six weeks now of jobless claims that any one of those weeks would have been a record pre-pandemic, far worse than anything from the Great Recession. When you add in pandemic programs onto that week, 348,000 people filing for first-time benefits under pandemic programs, that's 1.1 million. So the state jobless claims headline, you know, it three weeks in a row has softened a little bit fantastic. Add in the pandemic unemployment insurance 1.1 million people filing for benefits, there's nothing fantastic about that at all. These are numbers that have been stubbornly high here, and something that concerns me is even as you're seeing some some signs of life in other parts of the American economy and the services sector for example, you've got the Congressional Budget Office saying that the US economy by size is expected to return to pre-pandemic levels in the summer. Employment is not expected to fully recover until 2024. That's the need for helping those people out of work, for helping people who can't find jobs or whose jobs have been sidelined. Whole industries have been sidelined because of the pandemic.
0: That's where the real need is here. And that's such a great point. I mean, we've recovered, what, three quarters of the growth drop that we saw, just 60 percent of the jobs that we were lost. And the longer that we are without those jobs, the more stubborn and persistent unemployment gets. And this is critical. And it's part of the reason when we can't recapture those jobs because we're still mid pandemic, more stimulus, more financial aid is required. And, you know, you're seeing
1: in some recent polling, Quinnipiac polling this week, that, you know, the majority of Americans believe that there should be a stimulus package. There should be $1,400 stimulus uh, checks. Even, I think, two-thirds of Republicans mm. agree that there should be, there should be those $1,400 uh, um, uh, uh, checks, overall checks, not per week, of course. Uh, you know, so there's support among people. For, for help here because Main Street knows what's happening. The Wall Street-Main Street disconnect is just epic at the moment. And I think even those CPO forecasts, you can see that the economy is going to come back, but it could come back without millions of people uh, feeling the recovery.
0: And that's a real problem. I love your point as well about that Quinnipiac poll. I mean, we're talking about uh, politicians out of step with their constituents here for totally. the Republicans that are, are totally. pushing back here. I guess it must mean that the midterms are two years away. That time will (laughs) slip away. Hmm. Christine Romans, thank you. Naughty. All right. Germany's biggest lender, Deutsche Bank, posting its first annual profit since 2014. The turnaround driven by its investment banking division. Anna Stewart joins us now with all the details. Anna was poring over some of these numbers. Basically, the revenues in their investment banking division more than offsetting all the credit provisions, for potential credit losses, loan losses, credit card losses that they were uh, perhaps preparing for here. It's a, a crisis well managed. Well managed, and you're right. The investment bank uh,
2: really pushed up the entire earnings, up 32% in revenue for the year. No growth for any of the other business units, though. So, while the restructuring plan is well underway, it's been going for about a year and a half. Is that down to this? Is it also down to the trading environment we've seen? Lots of volatility in the last year, high trading volumes. The investment bank, of course, ironically, is where they're really cutting. That's the target of Deutsche Bank's big restructuring plan. Speaking to analysts today, Julia, analysts are very happy with these earnings.
0: They do think it points in the right direction, but is it sustainable going forwards? That's a great question. And even the CFO of Deutsche was saying, look, we expect less volatility in uh, in, in 2021. So it is an important question for them. Another important question, and it's probably one that they um, really don't want to answer any more on, is the relationship (laughs) between Deutsche Bank and the Trump family. Now, we know, and they said it in January, we're not going to do any more business with them going forward. But what can you tell me about reports of people leaving Deutsche Bank and those close, with close relationship with the Trump family? Yes, this is perhaps the story that Deutsche Bank doesn't want to talk about today,
2: and we haven't actually had comment from them yet. Um, We're learning a little bit more about two of the private bankers at Deutsche who left at the end of last year. They lent to Donald Trump and Jared Kushner. They are Rosemary Rablik and Dominic Scalzi. Now, we're learning from regulatory filings uh, that one of the reasons they left, or and I'll use the language in the filing, they were permitted to resign, Julia, following allegations about an unauthorized real estate deal. In the last few minutes, we've actually had a little bit more detail on this. It was the purchase of an apartment at 715 Park Avenue in 2013. And it was from a company that Kushner was a minority investor in. The other allegation is that the bankers were alleged to have engaged in the formation of an unapproved outside entity to hold this investment. Now, as I say, we haven't had any comment from Deutsche Bank on this yet. It's not good for their reputation, but as you said from a source speaking to CNN last month, we know Deutsche Bank doesn't want to do any future business for the Trump organization, but they're still owed around $340 million. That doesn't bode well if you consider that, well, hotels and golf resorts aren't faring too well, are
0: they, Julia? Yes. Poignant points to be making, Anna Stewart, as always. (laughs) Thank you so much for that. All right, now to Wuhan, China, the original epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak. A team of experts from the World Health Organization are there right now looking for clues about the origin of COVID-19. CNN's David Carver spoke with one of the scientists in the mission and he joins us now from Shanghai. Great to have you with us, David. As always, what more can you tell us about what they're saying? Clearly, it's early days.
3: Hey there, Julia. Good to be with you as well. you got to look at the timing of all of this. Here we are 12 months after the city of Wuhan went on lockdown, more than a year after what was believed to be the original ground zero, the Huanan seafood market was closed. And so from a scientific perspective, one of the questions I asked the scientist who's, who's part of the WHO field team is, has that all been damaging, the amount of time that it's taken to get on the ground, plus the fact that a lot of the evidence, if you will, including the market, was cleaned. The Chinese authorities did that, in their words, to prevent against any festering of the virus and potential spread from that original ground zero or what was suspected to be just that. His response is that he feels as though they are still getting good, solid information on the ground and that they feel as though it's helping them get closer to the origins of COVID-19. A caravan of vehicles pulling into the Wuhan Institute of Virology. On board, international experts representing the World Health Organization. Their mission? To find the origin of COVID-19.
4: What we're trying to do right now at this stage is keep an open mind about every possibility.
3: CNN connected with zoologist Peter Daszak. He's part of the source tracing assignment here in China. Speaking to us from his hotel room in Wuhan, he had just visited the Virology Institute's highly secured and highly controversial lab. It is from here that former U.S. President Donald Trump and his Secretary of State Mike Pompeo have alleged without any evidence the virus originated.
5: I think they made a horrible mistake
3: and they didn't want to admit it. China has rejected the claim.
4: It was good to see the lab and, and you know, you confirmed your suspicions that it's an incredibly well-built, um, well-designed, well-managed lab. Mm-hmm.
3: Members of the scientific community have said that Dashek has a conflict of interest due to his close ties to the Wuhan Institute of Virology and its leading scientist, Shi Zhengli. The
4: like
3: this video, shot in 2014, shows the pair inside the institute examining coronavirus samples collected from bats. They've jointly published several scientific research papers.
4: She speaks very openly and quite directly um, and often goes, counter to this sort of political trend.
3: Jing Li is known as Batwoman in China. She's reached celebrity status. Since the SARS outbreak in 2003, she has focused her research on bats and the various coronaviruses they carry. But after COVID-19 was first detected in Wuhan, less than 10 miles from where her lab is located, speculation surfaced that the virus leaked from her facility.
4: I've seen evidence that this likely came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology.
3: The Trump administration provided no evidence to support those claims. Do you think it's possible this virus was engineered within that lab and leaked?
4: There's no evidence of that at all, but it is something that we talked about with people at the Wuhan lab, and got really honest and frank and and, uh, good, informative answers to. Um, uh, because they themselves uh, brought this up. Conspiracies around lab leaks that they feel strongly um, have no grounds.
3: Swarmed by media throughout their site visits, the WHO field team also inspected the hospitals where the early COVID-19 patients were treated, along with the now infamous Huanan seafood market. This place had a lot of attention over the past 12 months paid to it. There was a lot of concern that perhaps the virus was still festering in spots. So the Chinese authorities essentially wiped it clean. Dashak and other experts agree it is most likely that the virus originated from wildlife. Though without ruling it out, he stopped short of concluding it started in the market or even in Wuhan. CNN obtained these images from December 2019. They show a variety of caged creatures inside the now shuttered seafood market.
4: We're still piecing together the evidence. So we're looking at the animal evidence you know, what was sold in the market, where did it come from, Um, what types of, of animals are they, the ones that could carry coronaviruses.
3: China's state media has also suggested, without evidence, the virus might have been imported into the city on frozen foods, a claim leading health experts have dismissed as completely groundless. But it is an origin theory Dashak is not ruling out. The team's field study expected to continue into next week. Julia, one of the questions I asked, Ashik was about the access, because we've been on government trips here where essentially they say, look this way, don't look that way. And I said, how free-flowing is it? and And how much structure has been put in place by the Chinese versus the WHO asking for an agenda to be set? He says prior to this visit, the WHO experts put forth the things that they wanted to see, the information they wanted access to, and he said the Chinese have come up with an agenda that aligns exactly along with that. He says this is not a rogue trip, so they can't just go off to different places that they want to. However, he says that people are being candid with him, that there's transparency. Of course, we need to point out this is one expert. There are some 13 more who may have very different opinions and different experiences after this is all said and done.
0: Yeah, vital questions to be asked, David, over transparency and also to your first point, which was critical as well. What can you achieve one year later? Um, Fantastic work, as always. David Cover. thank you. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Myanmar's ruling generals are restricting access to Facebook and other social media, tightening their grip after seizing power in a coup. Multiple reports say police have filed charges against Aung San Suu Kyi, accusing her of illegally importing walkie-talkies. She's being detained until at least February 15th. A Tokyo Olympics organising official is apologising for sexist remarks, suggesting that women talk too much. Yoshiro Mori reportedly said he was concerned board meetings would go on too long when asked about increasing the number of female members. Mori said he was sorry to the people he made feel unpleasant. Hmm. Welcome come on First Move, the retail investor revolution, the former CEO of TD Ameritrade on the movement behind the GameStop rally. And as nations scramble for COVID vaccines, the Serum Institute of India says it will provide more than a billion doses for UNICEF. That's all coming up on the show. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where tech is set to power higher in early trading after flirting with record highs in the previous session. Lots to occupy investors in the medium term from leadership change at Amazon, with CEO Jeff Bezos stepping down to what measures a democratically controlled Congress will take to tackle things like competition through to greater scrutiny of tech mergers. Reports say EU and UK regulators are probing Nvidia's $40 billion bid for UK chipmaker Arm. All this as US regulators meet today to discuss last week's volatility, the rise and fall of stocks like GameStop and AMC, and the role of brokers like Robinhood and others. Joining us now is Joe Moglia. He's former CEO at online broker TD Ameritrade. Joe, great to have you with us. You know, financial markets go through it. phases. Good morning. Financial markets go through phases, transformations, shift, new customer groups. How potent and important, whether you're a regulator, or a broker or a financial market player, is this new wave of socially media, social media connected yeah. investors?
6: Well, well, number one, I mean, it's very, very important. But the reality is we've had uh, individuals, you know, buying and selling stock on the Internet since the 1990s. And right. the enthusiasm for that has ju- has just grown and grown and grown. I think what uh, bar stools have done or what uh, Wall Street uh, chats have done uh, has, has been able to, in effect, aggregate the enthusiasm of the individual investor, sp- specifically the day trader, to get involved with a very specific trade, which is what they did the other day, which had a tremendous impact in terms of what's going on. So now it's an important part of the market. But as you said, there's so many different parts of the market. It's just one part of it.
0: They've been able to aggregate, important word and a choice of of word selection there, their views on what to do or what not to do. At the same time, we've seen zero commission access to the market. And we call this the democratization of of finance. Access to financial markets and to financial products is one thing. And I, I agree that's been democratized in a way. What necessarily hasn't been is education about how to invest? Who else is out there? What's legal and what isn't?
6: You know, number one, I could not agree more. I think you've got to look at it along, along the lines of basically the three types of traders. You've got the long-term investor that is has, has a much longer holding period. They need to have a disciplined, sophisticated, well-thought-out strategy. Places like Schwab are really focused on that. Then you've got the active trader, People that, you know, may very well have a long-term strategy as well, but they're also going to be involved with buying and selling stocks over time. Like Ameritrade was really good at that. That's part of the reason why Schwab and Ameritrade came together. Then you have the day trader. That's really the phenomenon that we're talking about right, right now that Hood would, would, would uh, make sure they're paying attention to. If you've got serious active traders and you've got serious long-term investors, you have to have education for them. You have to. With regard to the day trader, frankly, you have to have education for them. And I don't think it exists yet, Julia. So the issue with the trade the other day wasn't what happened with the trade, but when uh, when trading halted, when the market started to turn around and uh, GameStop started to come back off, if, if those day traders were aware of that ahead of time, they would have done a much better job of protecting themselves. So education associated with a trade like that what happens when it turns around? What's the real impact of the leverage? What's actually going behind the scenes with regards to the to clearing? And therefore, if you understand that, you recognize if there's a lot of volatility, trading might, might be halted in a particular stop. I could not agree more. Education for the day trader is critical. I'm not positive that they're getting that now.
0: What about education for the brokers and how they behave as well and the information and the communication that they provide? I mean, you as an expert leading one of these firms in the past, do you look at what Robinhood did and the way that they communicated what they did and perhaps the way they communicated before this volatility happened? And I appreciate they're a relatively new company. Do you think they messed up here, too?
6: I wouldn't go as far as saying that they they messed up. I think because they're a relatively new companies, something like this hasn't happened to them before. They've also been self only self-clearing for you know the last couple of years. And that's a pretty delicate business with a lot of risk with 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 a, a lot of technology and a lot of regulations around it. so I think I think in terms of Robin Hood's model, when they want to when when they they want to cater in effect to the day trader, they encourage that type of activity. Their next step is to then approach, the day trader, their client base, with the level of understanding and education that we just referenced. That's one of the next things they have to do. Now, places like Ameritrade, uh, Schwab, E Trade, uh, and then the larger the larger broker brokerage firms, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, they all do that. They provide that education. But for the day trader, that's not quite there yet.
0: Do the regulators need to play a role in this, Joe? Or does it come down to an individual investor to say, you know, I'm going to choose where I go here in order to perhaps get better educated and be communicated with yeah. in, a, in a different way?
6: Well, Julia, the, the, the individual investor surely has the right to make those decisions. They right. are free to make those decisions. With regard to regulator, first of all, anytime you have something significant like this happens, there's going to be some sort of investigation behind the scenes. Was there anything that should not that should not have been taking place that did take take place? They'll do that. But in terms of what they can do right now, uh, 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 Janet Yellen is actually meeting with heads of regulatory agencies today to talk about that very topic. So, so, so uh, she probably heard that from you. <laughs> and uh, what they need to look at, I think, right away is, for example, you've got uh, settlement takes place in two days. So so, so, so for the audience, you do a trade today, but it doesn't settle for a couple of days. Well, with blockchain technology and all the technology we have, there's no reason we can't do simultaneous trade and settlement. Uh, so that's one of the things that, that they can look at. The other thing that they can look at is, is, should there be a little bit better guidance around shorts? And is are there, there there's some things that we might be able to do? to soften the volatility with regard to the market. So, yes, I think there are things that they can do. And it's going to start to look at those right away.
0: Oh, Joe, you mentioned the magic word there, which was blockchain technology. You're going to come back and talk to us about that because I couldn't agree more. There are way more efficient ways that we can tackle trade settlement, quite frankly. Um, But I want to ask you very quickly about the zero commission model here. Do you think it still holds post the events of the last week particularly the business model for brokers like Robinhood, where they hand over these trades to a market maker and they get paid money in order to do that. You know, there is nothing free in life. And if you want to get free access to these financial products, there has to be, again, some offset here where they make money some other way. And that's part of the fury, I think, that was seen in the last week from these
6: investors. I think that's very much the case. Now, what you just said, though, Julia, you've got a lot of components in that. So you, just free trading itself, is, does that make sense? Uh, you've got, how about your you reference payment for order flow, Though you didn't use that term. The, uh, so first of all, as far as free trading goes, free trading does make sense. Chuck, Chuck Schwab said 25 years ago, one day we will have free commissions. And today we have free commissions. Now, with regard to free commissions, if you're, with regard to the business model, uh if you just have free free commission, there's got to be other ways where you can also make money. That could get the payment for a float, but it could also deal with different revenue streams. And a lot has to do with what kind of asset base you have in your balance sheet. So all those is part of that from the business, from the brokerage side. Now you go back to, to the individual investor side. The fact that you've got an opportunity to do to have free trades, I think, is a wonderful thing. But what you need with those free trades to make good decisions is the education that we talked about. Right. Uh, for the day trader, <laughs> that doesn't really exist. Yeah, you got to you got to understand where the or money's or the coming from. That, that does.
0: Yeah, you we'll got to understand you've got to understand who's paying the bill for your free access to uh, financial products. I guess you're right. We've gone full circle, and it's about people well, understanding. Well, no,
6: the individual investor—they're not—they're getting it for free, and we can Precisely. talk about that if want to. So. You're talking about payment for it. They are definitely getting it for free. The argument there is the payment for a full thing. Oh well, you actually you're giving away some of your money because the market makers are, are are giving the brokerage firm some money. Do we have a minute to put this in perspective?
0: We don't because I want to ask you something okay. else. You're going to come right. back and you're going to come back and talk right, to me. But I I think we agree. It's that you've got to understand why you're getting free access to these financial products because the company, the broker themselves, is making money somewhere else. You are a celebrated football coach. And I want to ask you whether you have any advice for Tom Brady, because we are heading into Super Bowl weekend. It would be criminal of me not to
6: ask you, Joe. (laughs) Tom Tom Brady's 43 years old. He's been (laughs) playing football for 21 or 22 years. He will probably go down as the greatest quarterback in the history of the game. I'm not quite sure I can give Tom Brady any advice going into the game, but I will. Tom, before the game, you got (laughs) to settle down. You got to get a good night's sleep. Then you got to go and keep a clear head and execute on game day. Awesome. The coach always gets help. the last word. The <laughs> now I'm going to bet on Tampa Bay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Joe, great to have you with us. Come back and talk to me, please, especially on efficiency and how we can improve settlement in trades, because this is so important. Yeah. Joe, great to have you Thank with you, us, too. former CEO Thanks. of TD Ameritrade. Thank you. All right. The market opens next. Welcome back to First Move. The opening bell has sounded on Wall Street and we've got a higher open across the board for U.S. stocks. U.S. initial jobless claims remain highly elevated, however, with more than 770,000 people filing last week for first-time claims ahead of tomorrow's all-important jobs report. It's nothing we don't already know. eBay helping give tech a boost. Shares of the online retailer are rallying After strong Q4 numbers up more than 11% so far in the session, strong earnings helped propel Google parent company Alphabet to record highs yesterday too. Wow, look at that chart. All right, the Serum Institute of India is the world's biggest manufacturer of vaccines, and that's the sort of scale that's required. In its latest supply deal, 1.1 billion COVID-19 vaccine doses for UNICEF to protect people in the world's poorest countries. The Serum Institute will act as manufacturer for the AstraZeneca and Novavax-designed vaccines, which UNICEF will get at a cost of around $3 $3 a dose. I'm very excited to say uh, joining us now is Adapunawala. He's the CEO and the executive director of the Serum Institute of India. Brilliant to have you on the show once again. That is a huge deal. Give us a sense of scale and how you're managing to do it with such a low price.
7: Uh, nice to be with you uh, again, Julia. You know, um, we've been making a billion and a half doses a year anyway every year as our normal business and and vaccine supply to Africa, South America, and so many other nations. So when we had to rejig capacity and future sacrifices were made for new product launches, that's how we were able to rejig our capacities in a very short amount of time um, to make these vaccines. And we also took a lot of risk and started stockpiling the product ahead of time before the license was granted. And when we made that bet, we didn't know if Novavax, the AZ Oxford product, anything would work. And that's why we have so many doses right now in stock that we can you know, help out a lot of nations with.
0: I mean, you guys were organized. This is what you do. I want to get your wisdom and your perspective on why there is such a scramble going on at this moment for, for vaccines beyond what was already expected? I mean, I, I want to ask you about Europe, but I just first want to start by asking, why are we in the position globally that we're in?
7: So two two or three reasons. Um, firstly, vaccine manufacturing is extremely complicated. I think a lot of people underestimated that. Uh, they didn't manage people's expectations and we all gave forward-thinking uh, forecasts on what we on the timelines that we all be able to do things on, and um, underestimating you know the, the, the issues that do come with handling biologicals, um, the timelines and the, uh, the 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 claims that everybody made is now one of the reasons why we are in the situation that we're in, and you're going to see further delays unless we address one very serious issue. So whilst manufacturers like us have been busy making vaccines for the last eight, nine months, um, it's a shame that the regulators globally, and when I mean regulators, I'm talking about the US, Europe, UK, WHO, other countries, all the regulators of all these countries, they very well knew that there are only a few 10 or 15 countries which would be manufacturing the product, maybe 20 countries. Why couldn't we have had a global harmonization of regulation? Today, I have a stockpile in my, in my warehouse of 70 million doses, yet I can only give it to India and a few select countries because of it not being licensed in other countries. Why couldn't we have had all that ready and harmonized for the last eight months? We're still waiting for a WHO approval. We've submitted the dossier, then we will go to the UK, then maybe, the, then maybe Europe. That's all adding time. Now, that's for me. Then you, you multiply that with all the delays other manufacturers are going to face in that. So this is something we can still fix globally if all the regulators will come on one page on one platform and say that, look, this is the standard information and documentation which we need, you know, and then that makes life so much easier and quicker to supply to all these countries.
0: Why aren't we doing this? Because you're at the heart. You see exactly. And you actually had, to your point, a year, a nine month run in to to anticipate the problems here. I vividly remember you saying to me, we're not going to have enough vaccines to 2024 until 2024. And that made huge headlines because people thought you were a skeptic. But you saw the problems. Are people coming together now, at least, to recognize this? Or to your point, are you still sitting with doses you can't use?
7: Well, absolutely. People realize this now. It's very clear. It's out in the open. And I think, as I said, one area to fix is this global harmonization of regulatory. Um, You know, for example, today, we can't give it to the U.S. even if they want to take it because it's not approved there. So, I mean, when I said 2024, I was being realistic. Everyone else pounced on me and said, oh, you know, Um, How can that be when we're ready to give it here? And there? I said, okay, fine, show it. Uh, You know, great. Good luck to you if you can. And that's the amount of time it's going to take if we're talking about more than 10 billion doses being rolled out, because let's look at 2021 um, from everyone you've spoken to and the forecast they've given. um, Let's even assume that they will be able to deliver what they claim. You know, that's nowhere close to the doses that we need. So
0: it's going to take a few years. Have you spoken to the EU over potentially supplying doses to them?
7: Um, Well, we've spoken to the UK and we're hoping that the EU uh, accepts the UK MHRA approval process, uh, which, you know, it's all the same everywhere in the world. It's the same information and data that's going out. So, you know, it's just a different format and a few other expectations. So we're going with the UK right now. The EU hasn't approached us Officially, but, you know, it's a matter of time till they do. And we hope that to save time, we just go through the UK process, which they would respect being also a country which adheres to all the same standards. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll supply to them as well, but they haven't officially approached us yet.
0: I mean, it all goes back to the same thing, doesn't it? Better coordination with regulators. Do you understand some of the concern, though, that various nations have with scepticism, the speed at which this was done? You can only go as far as public opinion and confidence perhaps will allow.
7: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the the licences and permissions that have been given, it is an emergency use licence. It's not a full licence. So that means that you still have to... Um, gather more data from trials and other things and follow-ups from people who, patients you've vaccinated, and you give more data to the regulator, which is absolutely correct, because, you know, we've done this in a very short span of time. But in a pandemic, what's the alternative? If you wait for a full, complete trial and follow-up of six months or a year on a patient, then, you know, everybody's going to have to wait another year for vaccines. So, everyone rightly said, let's go for an emergency use licensure and then, you know, continue continue the follow-up and data on everything where we get more information on safety and efficacy um, on on vaccines. And I mean, you know, for example, now you've got um, some data coming out to show that some of these vaccines are even going to prevent infection and transmission, which is a big deal because initially when we start, you know, we were paranoid that, okay, even if you get vaccinated, you'll be safe,
0: but you might still be able to infect your loved ones or or anyone else. I mean, this is huge news. I agree with you. We keep our fingers crossed that that's the case for, for all of these vaccines. Um, I want to just ask you, because I haven't already, about the recent fire. I mean, you mentioned the stockpiles, and we were gratified to, to hear that none of your supplies had been damaged, but you did lose a number of colleagues in that fire, which is clearly heartbreaking all around. I Obviously, our, our thoughts go to the families involved. I just wanted to ask how, how your staff are doing.
7: No, no, thank you for that. You know, we, it was a huge shock and tragedy and unfortunate incident. It was an accident. And, um, you know, we're over it now, finally. Uh, very uh, fortunately, some of the uh, floors that were damaged were not being used for uh, COVID-19 vaccines, which was a huge relief also, uh, there was damage to other vaccines, which we are now managing and rejigging, but, um, and there'll be some delays on those supplies, but nothing too significant. The main tragedy was the loss of life, which you know, we can't get back now. And, um, uh, but uh, fortunately, we've got multiple different buildings and filling lines and areas and excess capacity, so uh, it, it won't impact the, the supply position of the COVID-19 vaccines.
0: No, we, we thank you for all the work that you and your, uh, your team are doing. It's, it's incredible. Thank you. And stay in touch, please. We want to hear more progress. <laughs> they're the CEO and Executive Director of the Serum Institute of India. Great to chat to you, sir, as always. Thank you. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. Volvo cars smashing sales records, thanks mostly to China, the company where its parent company, Geely, is based. It was Volvo's best ever second half of the year for profits and sales. And in China, sales soared over 90% in January year-on-year. That more than compensated for losses from earlier shutdowns. More on that shortly. For now, more than 8,000 people in 10 of Japan's prefectures are waiting for a bed in a COVID hospital or isolation facility. It shows how Japan's healthcare system is straining under the surge of infection. CNN's Selena Wang reports.
8: When Sue became sick with COVID-19, she felt helpless. A single mother of two, she said she had no option but to isolate herself in this tiny room. Her kids, aged 3 and 6, slept alone in this living room for nearly two weeks. Sue, who asked not to be identified by her real name because the stigma of COVID-19 still carries in Japan, says that since she has asthma and chronic bronchitis, her symptoms could suddenly turn worse. I wondered if I would wake up tomorrow. She had a persistent high fever and trouble breathing but she said she wasn't able to get guidance from her public health center in Hyogo prefecture. The health center couldn't speak directly to her case, but said that though they tried to contact isolating patients daily, the holidays were incredibly busy.
3: Japan is dealing
8: with its worst wave of COVID-19 since the pandemic began. Hospitals are overwhelmed in some places. Seriously ill patients are being turned away. Japan has just extended its state of emergency in 10 prefectures for another month. Sue says she was unable to find anyone to take care of her children. Thankfully, Sue recovered, but not without emotional scars. I felt like I was abandoning my children. I was feeling sick in terrible condition, but I felt more pain leaving my children alone. More than 8,000 people across 10 prefectures who have tested positive for COVID are waiting for a hospital bed or space at an isolation center. That means more people are dying at home from COVID. Is it unthinkable that in Japan, a country with national health insurance, that so many people are waiting to get into a
7: hospital? Tens of thousands of people with COVID-19 had to stay home and they cannot have access to a healthcare system, they can't be hospitalized, and they can't even see doctors. And that's a very harsh reality.
8: (laughs) Cases in Japan have more than doubled in the past two months to more than 390,000 cases. Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga even made a rare apology for the country's inability to provide the necessary care. What exactly went wrong in Japan's response to the pandemic?
7: We didn't prepare the healthcare systems for infections, and this is the result of it.
8: Dr. Hideo Maeda is the head of a public health center in Kita Ward. His staff members have quadrupled to 40 since the pandemic started. But it's still not enough. The calls are non-stop. In his ward alone, every day dozens of patients are waiting for hospital space.
3: Many staff members are working every day until midnight, on weekends and holidays. We're exhausted and
4: overwhelmed with stress.
8: Yet Japanese officials insist that the Tokyo Olympic Games will still be held this summer. Sue says she still has some lingering symptoms from COVID, but she's just thankful to be able to hold her children again. When her isolation ended, the first thing they said to her was, Ma, please hug me. Selena Wang, CNN, Tokyo.
0: More after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. Redefining America's relationship with the rest of the world in focus today as U.S. President Joe Biden lays out his foreign policy plan in a speech at the State Department in a few hours time. It's been described as restoring America's place in the world. John Howard joins me now. John, great to have you with us. No test in no shortage of tests, quite frankly, in recent days. We've had the Alexei Navalny prisoning in in Russia, a coup in in Myanmar. How much detail do we get on these relationships from Joe Biden today, or is it going to be broad brush?
5: I think it's likely to be broad brush, uh, Julia. I think the uh, emphasis of Joe Biden and uh, Tony Blinken, his new secretary of state, is going to be restoring, as you said, America's place in the world. But the way to do that, uh, in Joe Biden's view, is by restoring America's alliances, using multilateral approaches to solve problems. So uh, where Donald Trump uh, called into question the U.S. commitment to NATO and the, its uh, willingness to follow through on its Article 5 commitments to defend member nations, Joe Biden's going to emphasize the importance of NATO. Uh, NATO is a, a means of confronting uh, Vladimir Putin for his behavior. Um, The same is true with respect to China, for example. Uh, uh, Donald Trump withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a way in which the United States and Western allies were going to try to constrain uh, China's behavior and uh, compete with China economically. Uh, Joe Biden has not rejoined that partnership, but he is going to try to revive those uh, alliances. And the test, of course, is going to be the results. Uh, Mm. Does uh, the approach by Joe Biden have a greater success in changing China's behavior than Donald Trump's. Uh, that, that is going to be a results test that we'll see uh, over time. Same is true with respect to uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin.
0: What do you think the top priority is for him, John? We have no end of issues to deal with on the domestic front. What has to be the top priority internationally beyond all the things he has to focus on at home?
5: Well, I think long term, uh, it's going to be the United States relationship uh, with China. It's competition Mm. with China economically, uh, America's desire uh, not to cede a power to uh, China in the Pacific region. Remember, uh, President Obama uh, uh, emphasized what he called the pivot to Asia. Um, That was uh, interrupted by uh, uh, the Trump presidency. And uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership went ahead uh, with other member countries without the United States. Uh, Joe Biden has indicated he's going to be um, uh, slow to uh, go to new trade agreements uh, uh, for a while. Uh, But ultimately, the ability to um, uh, compete with China, to constrain China, is going to be a big test of American power in the 21st century.
0: How cautious do you think international leaders will be when they have the overtures from the Biden administration to try and perhaps repair some of the damage that was done?
5: Oh, I think they're going to be highly interested in it. Um, uh, It was not a source of comfort for Canada, for Mexico, for France, for Britain, um, uh, for Japan. Uh, The way in which Donald Trump uh, used a kind of blunderbuss approach, uh, uh, angering allies and uh, adversaries alike, um, not making clear, what the priorities were for the United States on the international stage and uh, seeming to behave somewhat erratically and, and randomly, um, you know, slapping tariffs on our allies in addition to slapping tariffs on China, uh, I think they're going to welcome that approach. And I, I think certainly their uh, constituents are going to welcome that approach because we saw over the last four years um, international assessments by uh, people who live in other countries of America and America's leadership decline significantly over the last four years.
0: John, one of the things I love about getting you on the show is that I always end up Googling on some of the terminology so now I know precisely what a blunder bus is. Fabulous. <laughs> John Howard, thank you so much, uh, as you always. <laughs> All right, quick look at the markets for the final time. Your stocks at session highs, blue chips driven higher by strength in financials. The Nasdaq is currently also on track for a record close. Oil also outperforming in the session as OPEC pledges once again to keep a lid on supplies. Brent crude pulling back A little in recent trading, but still near one-year highs from low levels, remember. All traders hopeful that vaccine rollouts will gain steam and help economic reopenings too. It's all tied. All right, that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chasley. Stay safe, as always, and connect the world with Becky Anderson. It's next. We'll see you tomorrow.